trick or treat. Just kidding. You're old. All this and more coming up on a Halloween This Week in Retro. High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. How did we survive before Google? A storm of Atari. And can a game kill you? All of these killer topics and more coming up on this week's show. Up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. Hello and welcome to the show. It's been a few weeks since I've been here and I've got good reason for that, which I will explain. But uh, we have a guest joining us today, a familiar face who's done himself, especially today, to look horrific for Halloween. Haven't you? Mark fixes stuff. Welcome. No, I haven't. This is how I usually look. What could you possibly mean? <laughs> Dave, for the purpose of those listening on audio only, would you please describe Mark's face? <laughs> Mark's face looks like Mark's face always looks like, except there's no colour in it. Yeah, you do look Good a bit strange. Are you, Mark, in the words of Holly Willoughby, are you okay? Are you? Are you okay? <laughs> no, I'm not Okay. <laughs> I've got I've got a rotten cold, but we'll be okay. <laughs> we'll be okay. We'll we'll be okay. Thank you for coming on and fighting through the illness. Yes. So, <laughs> if you're impressed by Mark's professionalism, his YouTube channel is Mark Fixes Stuff, uh, and you can go and follow him there. Now, why have I been away, and why am I going to be away for a couple of future episodes? Um, I have mentioned this in in other posts about in particular the charity calendar that we're doing because it's it's sort of going towards. Um, a, uh, a preschool that I've been helping as part of the process of becoming an adoptive parent. So I'm nearly a year into the process and it just so happens that through ad- October, I have to do a training course every week on the day that we normally film this week in retro. So I've been tied up doing that. There's a lot more to come. Um, if you've been through the process, love to hear from you because it's nice to hear others' experiences. And if you've been through the process, you probably know that a large part of it is horror stories telling you about all the bad things that are going to happen uh, and preparing you for that so you can hopefully have a good experience through the process. So share your good experiences with me, please. Show me the light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> so that's why, why I've been away and I'll be in and out in the coming weeks, but I'm not going anywhere. Don't worry. It's for that reason. How have you guys been? Well, I've been all right. I wasn't so well last week. I don't remember recording last week's show, but um, I got away with it, I think. Um, and I'm much better this week, and I've got loads of things to catch up on, so I'm quite eager to get into them as soon as we finish recording today. Fantastic. And Chris? Yeah, I've been good on a Halloween note. I've been all the way through Fear and now going through Fear 2, and once again, I've put a nice scary picture on the screen behind me for those of you watching it on YouTube. Oh, the most horrific picture oh, I could yeah. find on the internet. Yeah. What what model is that? Uh, I think that's a 520 ST. Makes you shudder. (laughs) (laughs) Only on Halloween. Well, well, we better not keep Dave from doing the things he really wants to be doing. So let's go into this week's first story. (laughs) My Halloween horror story this week is all about being old. Google has dominated many areas of the internet for years now. Certainly in the case of the search engine, it's been nearly 25 years. And I'm sure some of our listeners cringe a little bit when they hear mainstream media use the catch-all term to Google something, when actually what they mean is just to search for something on the internet. Have you guys ever found yourself shouting at the radio when that happens? No, I I like it. I'm happy with it. The same as hoovering up. I hoover up with my Bosch. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I guess. Mm. 
maybe I need to give it a hundred years like Hoover and then I'll be comfortable with it. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it's highly likely that, that when they say they Googled something, they did actually use Google to search for something such as the dominance of the search engine. So this story this week submitted by Dr. Local over in uh, Tech Radar is the source of the story. It's a nice exercise in going back in time and considering what services we did use before Google pretty much took over the world. It does, of course, begin with search. So. What did we all use before we searched for things with Google? Um, any any suggestions before I go into what the story says? Yeah. What we did was we sat in the pub and we made things up and nobody could <laughs> tell it was a lie. That's so true. 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 Yeah. That's right. The, yeah. the death of imagination came via the internet. <laughs> um, so the article itself cites Alta Vista as being a popular search engine in it says it states 1998 although Alta Vista did start up in 95 and then gained popularity in subsequent years now I do remember using Alta Vista um, and Alta Vista it, its demise came when it was purchased by Yahoo in 2003 and um this takes us back to an era of search engines I'm sure you'll remember with the likes of Ask Jeeves, of Yahoo themselves, uh, and others where you were presented with a search box, but also you had a, like, a whole chunk of categories below it to browse like some kind of website directory. Do you remember doing that? And then it, it was the raw simplicity of Google with just a search box that made it really refreshing when it appeared. Um, it, it took a, a very simple and different direction. So, yeah, I mean, they always used to be called uh, web directories, if you remember back in the day. So you had AltaVista, you had Dogpile, um, Ask Jeeves, as you said. Um, what was the one with the little spider, the web crawler? I can't remember oh, yeah. that. But there were loads. And I remember in the 90s when I worked for a, a small company because I was under the age of 20 and I could plug a toaster into the wall. I was suddenly in charge of all things technical. So I had to submit our website to search engines, the website that I had to put together, by the way, in Notepad, and it looked awful. But I had to submit it to search engines, and you'd find these hundreds and thousands of lists of all these web directories and web rings. Do you remember web rings? Yeah, I mean, Google really is um, an example of how everything got dominated by one service and then just all sort of like compressed into to one thing you know and we it do did, say things yeah. like we you know we hoover up we google something oh you know your face is ugly but we can photoshop that you know these things do come to pass through dominance and usage yeah, you bring up a few things that come up in the article, including Photoshop as a catch-all term there, Mark. And the article does go on to discuss other Google services. Oh, and by the way, if you're listening and you can tell us what name the search engine was with the spider, uh, please do. Because I, I can picture the spider, I just can't remember the name of the service. Um, so it's, the, the article goes on to other services, including Google Maps, something that I use all the time, especially since I got a car that supports Apple CarPlay. Do either of you, any of you use CarPlay or the what's the Android one? Android Auto or something like Android that? Auto, yeah, yeah, I, 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 I yeah. have on, yeah. on higher cars, yeah. Yeah. So even Just though... when my car starts. <laughs> even though I've got a piddly old iPhone 8, it, it, it turns my car from having a pretty out-of-date uh, and dumb sat nav into using Google Maps for its sat nav, which adapts according to live traffic. It updates, uses aggregated data from other users who are using the service so it can tell you when things are getting slow, when roads are closed. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's a great service. But the example the article gives before Google Maps is a website called MapQuest. 
And also then makes mention of a, a UK site called Multimap. Now, I have to admit, I didn't use either of those services. If I think of pre-Google Maps, I think of Autoroute. I don't, I don't think of those services. But maybe it's just because I'm in the, the sat-nav mindset rather than just the Atlas mindset. I don't know. I remember both of those. And um, I, I particularly remember things like going around roundabouts with multiple A4 printouts saying, turn left onto this B road. Um, and yeah, we did have um, in the job, we had um, the um, was it auto route, you said, with all the yep. pins on the map for all of the uh, the customers that I had to visit. Uh, yeah. yeah, it was equally dangerous. And people go, oh, you shouldn't change your radio now. You shouldn't operate your sat-nav now. Mate, I remember when I had a folder full of A4 pages that I was trying to read whilst going around roundabouts and trying not to get squashed by an articulated lorry. So, you know, progress is real. Or a laptop with a GPS unit connected by a serial cable on the passenger seat <laughs> telling you where to go. Chris, you were bouncing up and down there. Well, that's what I was just thinking. Yeah, you had the GPS, the offline GPS is like TomTom as well uh, and yeah. Garmin mm, yeah. um, to sort of bridge the gap between things like that were completely offline like auto route and the online like google maps so you had those as well and of course other services exist as as do um in the case of all the examples we'll, we'll talk about here i think is it Waze is one of the uh sort of most used open source mapping systems um and i remember it might have been that one it might have been another one when it first came about to encourage users to use it it turned your route into kind of a pac-man game and you had to drive around gobbling up the Pac-Man balls <laughs> to kind of train the service. Um, that was fun. Anyway, it, it goes on to another service, YouTube, of course, a Google service. And before YouTube, which you may be listening to this show on right now, it suggests Real Player was the one to go to, which did have channels on. You could search within Real Player. Uh, there were often weird kind of Chinese channels in there. But it wasn't that huge searchable website that YouTube is today. You know, more often than not, you came across a file on a website that just happened to be in the real format, and then you'd click it and you'd play it, and you'd get your latest episode of South Park or whatever it was that you you wanted to watch at the time. Any, there's there's no sort of shaking of heads or arguments to that. I think Real Player was pretty much the de facto standard, wasn't it? I hated it. You oh, got RM files. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, I really can't think of anything that made online video as accessible as youtube did before that it was kind of a real struggle but that was also because of the bandwidths we were dealing with at the time as well so it was sort of a yeah. technology that emerged just at the right time i really can't think of what i would have gone to before other than downloading an animated gif <laughs> then we move on to web browsers of course google chrome chrome currently has about a 61% market share in web browsers. Now, the article gives Netscape Navigator as an alternative, and I can't argue with that, but it is worth remembering that through fair means or foul, Microsoft's Internet Explorer did have a 95% market share uh, at its peak in 2003. So plenty of people were using IE before then. Um, but if you go back to the earlier days of the World Wide Web, yes, Navigator, and even before that, Mosaic, which really helped to kick the web off. So I can't argue with that. Do you guys remember? I mean, I was a heavy user of Netscape Navigator, but I had Netscape Navigator Gold, and not many people yes. talk about it. You remember that? Yeah, because it had remember that the, the icon was literally gold. Yeah, as well. and, it, and it had a, a built-in web page editor. That was what was different about it. So yeah, not many people talk about it. And it was I still it free was, as well, wasn't it? No, 
<laughs> I think you were Was meant to not? pay for that version. I, pay oh, I, yeah. I didn't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yes, you're right. It was free, Mark. <laughs> it was. Free. I, I remember. I, re- I remember paying for it. He says quickly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The final two services that exist in this article are file sharing services. So before Google Drive, and you know, Google Drive is out there. I don't think it has the dominance in the market um, compared to some of its other services. There are plenty of other online storage systems but you know it's part of the google ecosystem and um i think this is probably the article's weakest suggestion because it suggests as an alternative to google drive compuserve or compunet now i really consider these to be service providers first and foremost yeah. you, you know it got you connected up to the service perhaps you got a bit of free storage somewhere with them it wouldn't have been in the gigabytes you know it would have been a tiny amount of storage and i think it's more likely going way back 25 years or more that you would have hosted storage yourself somewhere as an ftp server you would have got that set up you know opened up your firewall to get in and um flashed your nerd credentials uh, to people who had no idea of how to do this stuff I was just going to say CompServe and AOL, they used to try and outdo each other with um, how much free web space they'd give you for your free web yeah. space on their service, which wasn't a website. It was just basically a, a page. Um, yeah. And finally, photo sharing. It says, before Google Photos, we used Flickr. And um, that only takes us back to 2015. That's a fairly new service. Yeah. Uh, and I'm a bit old school because I consider photos to just be files. I don't consider them to be something separate. Uh, I would lump them in with cloud storage services like Google Drive. And personally, I still use a NAS at home and and have an offline backup of that. Um, But I know with mobile phones, with the way people consume these days, you know, it's, um, it's a nice, easy service to use. Google Photos to know that your photos from your Android phone are backed up and you can bring up your tablet and look at them on there as well and all the rest of it. But they're just files, right? <laughs> so um, there we go. That, the whole article is a reminder of pre-Google dominance and the services that we used. Dave, you, you've shared some of your thoughts so far, but do you agree with the writer's overall thoughts? Tell us about your experiences. I mean, broadly speaking, they're right. Um, there's something I've been thinking about though, the whole time you've been speaking, and it's the, the holy grail of what... Um, big internet companies have been trying to achieve from the word go, which is their page being where you go on the internet and everything contained within them, within their within their, their, their sphere. And we know that Yahoo tried it to some, ex- some success. That was AOL's whole shtick. That was the whole point of AOL. But it's still happening now. That's what Microsoft are doing now in Windows 11. They're trying to get you to go through them to get anywhere, be it where your own files on the internet. So this is still something that's ongoing. Um, As for Google's dominance, I'm very conflicted on it. On the one hand, I'm uncomfortable with the way that Google harvests and sells data and and then targets us with adverts. I don't like how privacy is, 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 is gone that way. However... I'm not sure how harmful it actually is in, in real ways. I don't I don't see the real harm in it apart from a few kind of edge cases. Um, but I don't something I'm, I'm not comfortable with is the way that searches work. Neil. Well, something that the article doesn't bring up is security or privacy. It, it's yeah. really just a nostalgic look back at alternative mm. services. But obviously, you know, these things do come into play in the modern day with the sheer number of users the speed of our connection and the volume of our data that we're able to share through the speed of yeah. that connection. So it is a concern, yeah. 
Um, but if you go to Google, it's heavily skewed in terms of commercial sites. And that's much different to how the internet used to be. It used to be the internet would, would, would search all sorts of places, but now it tends to search news and content provider sites, first of all. And that's presumably because they're paying Google for it. Um, but on the other hand, I love Google Assistant. It puts my cinema tickets QR codes into my Google wallet to make it easier when I'm checking in at the cinema to go and see a film. I like the way it reminds me of things. Um, it knows when it reads my email, so it'll start. It'll remember things from reading my emails. Um, and I recently switched from a Samsung phone to a Pixel phone, which is Google's own. I, I love it because of the full-fat Google experience. So I, I, I enjoy the benefits of being totally in there. They're, they're, they're not quite a walled garden like Apple, but within their um, within their whole sphere. Um, but I did like the old way where everything was, was was separate and we can configure it the way we wanted. These days, it's not quite the same. But a lot of what we had before was rubbish. I mean, rear players, as I said, can get in the bin. Mozilla, Mozilla was better than IE, but it was clunky. And the only reason web browsing now is such a pain is because of the masses of tracking and the fact that there's no longer really web pages out there. It's all dynamically generated remotely when you ask for it you'll get a, a page that's been generated just for you in most cases whereas it used to be a static web page that you connect to in most cases yeah uh, <laughs> my own website is very static um the retro collective although in fact the the rmc retro website does dynamically update with the latest video release and shoves it in there and i don't have to do anything so yeah very true there's not that personal touch to make that happen um yeah, um, Mark, any any points you want to throw in there? Well, I mean, you complain about privacy now, but privacy laws have been brought in over time as things have progressed. So the reason you're more worried about privacy these days is because you're more aware of it. Back in the wild, wild days, uh, the beginning, the frontier days of the internet, they weren't trying to drag you into an ecosystem, but they were literally harvesting your data and selling it because it wasn't against any laws. So now when you hear of a breach... It's because there's a breach and it's reported. I was going to say, um, it's more that I feel I should be concerned about privacy than I actually am concerned about privacy. Because, I think everybody's in that boat. You know, everybody feels yeah. the twinge of guilt through laziness that they maybe shouldn't be so heavily invested into the Apple or Google ecosystem that they shouldn't just be letting all of their stuff um, pile up in all these services. And, you know, I've got a problem because I used to be in the Apple ecosystem. Um, on YouTube, so I'm heavily invested in the Google ecosystem. Um, and there's things like, um, oh, God, what's this called? Um, what's the one with the little box? I can't remember. The file sharing service. There's Dropbox. so many of them. Yeah, Dropbox. There's Dropbox. There's Microsoft 365. There's um, Google Files. There's all kinds of nonsense. And I've got things everywhere now because they all come out with these special deals and because you got one foot in one and one foot in another you know i mean i think that's the danger of the prevalence of all these things but then again do you just want it to come down to one system because you know you never put all your eggs in one basket i mean putting eggs in a basket's a pretty stupid thing to do anyway put them in the fridge on that bombshell chris um well, look, i could echo everything dave said i think and make it my own um my modern is I, I mainly Google um, and Google services other than 
backing everything up to OneDrive simply because you get more space. If you pay for Office 365, you get a terabyte per user. So that just makes sense to me. So my phone actually backs up to OneDrive rather than to Google Drive. Um, And I can sleep at night knowing if, you know, every single day I wouldn't lose a single photo so long as that phone survives till the end of the day. Um, and, and that's a good thing, um, but equal questions about privacy. But so going back to the nostalgia trips, I mean, I was a heavy out of Vista user and was very sad to see that go. Um, Netscape I've talked about. WSFTP was the little program I used for uploading files. But again, it was to my service provider's free web space, which I think my first ISP, there's a trip down memory lane, it was Virgin, in fact. And they used to give you a bundled disk and all of that. And at the time, I was looking into website development. And then I remember ringing up the support line. Yeah, I've created a web page. Look, this is, this is a confession, right? I've made a web page um, and I've turned on the web server service in Windows and I don't think anybody can see it. So I rang up and the nice guy at the other end said, yeah, yeah you kind of need to upload it to our server. <laughs> so that's how green I was when I first and got into a web tinkering. Now, this was before I was a web developer. <laughs> this was me tinkering on my own. Certainly wasn't paid for it at this point. Um, so, yeah, it was it was an interesting time, uh, Wild Frontier. Um, but I remember using WSFTP for years. Um, yeah, so that's, that's my memories. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting article. I'd recommend you go and have a read. Um, It's also a reflection of the various battles over the years that, you know, the front line of technology of all the different fronts, whether it's um, online storage, web browsers, streaming media, you know, these battles have come and gone. And and the current one that's raging, of course, is artificial intelligence and uh, AI assistance. Just the other day, I saw my laptop, which has Windows 11 popped up and said, oh, here's Copilot. It's in the beta phase. You should start using Microsoft Copilot to help you, you know, and you've got all the assistance on your phones, Alexa and all the rest of it. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. Sorry if I've triggered your your uh, <laughs> assistant by saying the name. Um, so uh, it, it's an interesting piece of history and it will continue to to rage on. And sure, sure enough, in 25 years' time, we'll be talking about AI and all of the other fronts. Uh, do check it out. And um, I think we can probably formulate our question of the week, perhaps around some of this. Maybe we'll come to that at the end of the show. We are sponsored this week by Pixel Addict Magazine. Pixel Addict Magazine comes out every six weeks on the dot, and it is a a monthly magazine which has lots of digital culture in it. I bloody love Pixel Addict Magazine. Thank you. This month's magazine has a special section on lemmings, a game close to all of our hearts, particularly Mark. I am so excited because I'm looking forward in the script and apparently it has an article on the NC100, which you've described as a, a little handheld, but that was the Amstrad NC100. That was, it was the pre, it was the iPad before the iPad. I had one of these. They were fantastic. Sorry, carry on, Dave. I'm excited about this article. Seriously. I think you're getting ahead of yourself, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'll never guess what I'm going to see next. Neil. Go on, then. Hang, uh, sorry, Chris just mentioned a script. Can someone send it to me? <laughs> <laughs> The, the article on the, the NC100 makes me think about something else. They did a special one-off Amstrad Addict magazine. Um, a beautiful cover illustration on it. They had an interview with Alan Sugar, all sorts of things. I've not read mine yet. I'm going to get it. Um, when I go down to the cave, one of the editors will be there, and I think it'll be nice to take that home with me and read it in the hotel room. Um, but they've turned the, the amazing cover illustration into a poster, and you have the option to have it with or without the text overlay. 
It's A2, so it's quite big. It's 16 and a half inches by 23 and a half inches in old money. And it's a nice borderless print too. You can get that on the Pixel Addict website, where you can also sign up to get the PDFs for the magazine. Or you can get it delivered to you worldwide. Or you can even find it in your local butcher's shop. Pixel.addict.media. Thank you very much for sponsoring us. Thank you, Pixel Addict. As retro fans, we all enjoy playing our old games or old systems. Real hardware is great. It gets us closer to the experience. In my opinion, real hardware is miles better. However, our tastes and what we're used to have changed over the years. Struggling with 10 frames a second on Doom was fine back then, but these days, count me out, I'll take 60 frames a second if you can. And struggling with two or three frames a second in Driller or Castle Master is unpleasant now and unbearable, but 35 years ago, we would do it. Emulation has an advantage here. Most emulators allow you to increase the speed of the emulation. And if the game was originally made to work on different speeds and or you've got a version that's fixed to work in this way, you'll get much higher frames a second and smoother gameplay. Mostly PC games work this way, particularly if in the, in, from the 90s onwards they work that way. Just great with a faster CPU. Do you know the cheapest way to increase frame rates? Is you what? blink. Just like blink at the screen really quickly. There you go. And then you'll get at least another 10 frames per second out of Driller. That's what I learned as a kid. Really? I'll need to try that. That sounds like nonsense. <laughs> um, but yeah, PC games work great, but not so much with Atari ST games until the, the TT, the Mega STE and the Falcon came around. The original Atari ST, the STFM, the STE all ran at 8 megahertz and no faster. So because all these machines ran at the same speed, there wasn't so much of a call to make the games um, run better on faster processors. Um, well, that, is, that was until people started modifying them. And many of you all heard of WHD load games on the Amiga, which are a way of packaging up the games with compatibility fixes, and in some cases, a sort of vault, a virtual machine to run them for compatibility purposes with different versions of the operating system. And at the same time, people often modify the games to run at different speeds if you're using the accelerator. I don't think it's really a virtual machine, is it? It just sort of uh, changes the kickstart where needed, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it kind of loads kickstart and then loads the game within that kickstart. So it's kind of a sandbox type thing for the game to run in. I think it's just replacing kickstart. It's not It's not partitioning the hardware in any way like a like a VM. So Sorry, I'm just be, I, I'm, I, I'm being pedantic because I know people listening might pick you up on that. Okay. Yeah. Well, it 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 runs them within a within a different environment that way. That's why they they often need much more memory to run. Sometimes they'll modify. In fact, they will modify them to run for hard disks as well as putting save states in there as well. The Atari ST does have that in the community. Uh, Patari at 8-bit chip has a huge list of them, and there's another big list of debug of these modified games that are speed fixed for different versions of the Atari and also fixed for hard disks. And sometimes they even have bugs in the original game fixed. So why am I telling you this? I'm telling you because the Pi Storm works on the Atari STE. 
now. And thanks to a submission from G7VFY or a video from BW's Techno Shed, I now know a little bit about it. So the Pi Storm is an accelerator that came out. It's mostly used in the Amiga, and it connects a Raspberry Pi to the Amiga, and the Raspberry Pi is emulating a Motorola 68000 CPU running much faster than the stock one. And it's a cheap way of doing an accelerator. If you look at the cost of a, a 68060, the 060 tends to be the one that everyone really wants to have. Very expensive. You're talking a, a few hundred quid to get that running, whereas the Pi Storm is much cheaper. Um, originally, it didn't work on the ST because of bus arbitration and bus errors. I don't really understand that. Um, the developers did manage to get past that, and by the end of 2022, they had it working, but it wasn't quite fast enough. And then a guy called Steve Bradford got involved, and for the past nine months, he's been working on it, and it now works on a Pi 3, and it now works well, and it's exciting time for the ST because the ST's time with the Pi Storm is coming. So what do you guys think? Do you think real hardware accelerators are better than a Pi, or is a Pi okay? Which games do you think would benefit most from acceleration and are there any you would like to revisit with smooth FPS? Mm. Well, I think it's lovely that they've downgraded the Pi Storm to work with an ST. Um, it's it's nice to have Ooh. real hardware. <laughs> it's nice to have real hardware. I'm joking, of course. It's nice to have real hardware if it's accessible and if it's affordable. Generally, we've learned that it isn't, uh, especially if you're talking about, you, you know, a period correct legacy hardware going back and buying those old accelerators they're very expensive so uh the pi storm bridges that gap wonderfully i've used it on an amiga uh, and you can use it to offer as much or as little assistance as you really want so for example you can just set it to be a stock 68000 cpu and nothing else that's it you're not going to see an improvement um but then you can crank it up to be a faster CPU, to be a virtual hard disk, to give you more RAM. And it and it does that well enough for most people to be entirely happy uh, with that for the price they paid. And it's important to remember that for the price they paid. It's, it's a wonderful um, performance increase per pound. Um, I know I was. I was completely happy with it. Now, the ST is a little bit different in that it does have an IDE controller built in as standard, unlike the Amiga 500. So it's very easy to just add an SD card-based hard drive to an ST or certain ST models. Dave? Um, no, it doesn't. Um, no? It's SCSI. It has a sort of an almost a SCSI uh, almost, thing in the ST. Yeah. It's only the... It's I think, the oh, okay, sorry. Sorry, not ID, but it has a hard disk controller. Um, yeah. So in the example of the ST that I have, I just put a, um, is it an Ultra Satan in the back Ultra of it. Ultra Satan, which yeah. is the coolest name ever. <laughs> so plug that in, put an SD card in. And you're right, I didn't need to put anything inside the ST because it has a controller in there. Mark? Well, um, what's the point, really? I mean, if we're in this for nostalgia and playing the games from our youth and seeing those games how we played them in our youth then i mean it's a great electronics project right but what's the point change convenience the mark convenience mark so uh, in the case well, of the st so just, just, i, I, I just finished this point in the case of the st so in the case of the st it has the hard drive controller 
and then I'm assuming that the, the Pi Storm you can add RAM through it and it will give you the extra poke. Now, the reason you want the extras is so that you can have the convenience of, in the case of the Amiga, using something like WHD load. So you've got the overheads covered to be able to launch the game in the first place. You don't have to set the accelerator to be anything faster than a 68,000. You could keep it at exactly the same speed and just have the convenience of a, a nice cheap hard disk controller to be able to load the games without using floppies uh, and to have the RAM to cover the mm. overhead. So you can do that. And the yeah, nice thing but... is you can do it on the fly. You can set the Pi to be wireless. You can open up your laptop and you can say, change that to a different virtual hard disk file with my applications on. Change it to the one with my games on. So it, it, it's very, very convenient. Yeah, it's um, not what they're selling it on, though, is it? Are they not? You know, no, not really. I mean, I it's think... not going to be buy a Pi Storm, then you won't need a memory increase. It's like no. buy this and everything will run faster. You can pretend that no, things no, no. run it's, slow. It, it's I, I guess the name would insinuate that it's a storm. It's a lot yeah. of speed, but I don't think they're selling it as here's the fastest thing you can buy. It's here's the best price to performance to convenience balance that you can find for your system. Yeah. I just thought I'd, I thought I'd use it up a bit by playing the yeah. Devil's Avocado, the Ultra Satan's Avocado. You're, you're playing the Ultra Satan. <laughs> I get, I get Mark's point. I get Mark's point, and I think there's a balance to be made. I think if you look at a game like Driller, for example, what mm. the nostalgia from Driller is is not the not the fact it's two frames a second. That's not what we liked about it. We liked the gameplay and we enjoyed it, despite the two frames a second. So taking that away and maybe making it to ten or fifteen frames a second, making it smoother, I don't think it takes away from it. But I get your point, Mark. You might be right. Joking aside, though, with Driller, you could make it go faster anyway, not with blinking, Neil. Um, you just had to face the nearest. You, <laughs> you just, just had to face the nearest faster. wall. No, you had to face the nearest wall, and then, and then the frame rate would speed up because it was less Massive to render. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Mark, go on then. Carry on with your devil's avocado. No, no, Ultra Satan's avocado. I mean, don't get me wrong; it's clever and it's a nice electronics project. But um, I always, I always wonder a little bit whether you know, are we operating on nostalgia, or do we want the old games to run faster? In which case, do we need the electronics project? when we can stick it on a multi-core emulated systems and not have a, I mean, I appreciate, you know, there's no point to any of what we do. Let's be honest, guys. I mean, it's a Halloween episode. Let's reveal the horror. Everything we do is pointless. We might as well all just go home, throw everything into a pile, set fire to it. I know Ooh. that happened to me. And uh, no, I Hang mean, on. I mean, Was that a confession? Did you, <gasps> no, did you, I said that did happened you, Mark, to Did me. you set fire to it? No, awesome. what happened was Neil was visiting that day, and he was jealous of my massive <laughs> of my massive units. And uh, no, I mean at the end of the day, seriously, it's clever. But just because mm. you can doesn't mean you should. You can you mm. can stick a V8 engine in a mini. You know, is it still a mini? But this is what we call a hobby. So. Yeah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> you shouldn't knock people for trying. I'm not knocking people. I'm asking whether mm. whether it takes away from the original experience. It's definitely I, a subjective thing. Definitely, definitely yeah. subjective. It's not objective. I actually hear where Mark's coming from, and it's not really playing devil's advocate. And I appreciate both. What I've come to learn is that the hobby is not the same for all of us. And for myself, it is a nostalgia trip. So that's why I totally hear what you're saying there, Mark. Um, but for others, the hobby is tinkering. 
um, and seeing how fast can they make things run and, and what can they get to run on machines that we were told time and time again couldn't run on those machines, Doom on an Amiga. Um, so it's it's interesting from that perspective as well. Everybody's yeah coming from a dis- different angle. And we should point out that the acceleration that's on offer is acceleration that was available back in the day. This isn't yes. running at ludicrous speed. This is just trying to match the 030, 040, 060 options that were available at a cheaper price point. So you have that experience of being able to try things that you maybe saw in a magazine back in the day and couldn't afford, and now you can try it out at an affordable price. Oh, there is that, yeah. I'm I'm excited to see that this is coming to the ST because in all honesty, I assumed it already was or an equivalent. I just assumed there was some alternate universe of ST users uh, users that I was just not aware of what they were doing, but they would have an equivalent of what the Amiga's got. So it's only fair that this kind of stuff jumps uh, the gap and goes over to the the ST. That's not a problem at all. Um, And I'm not a snob about PyStorm which is a kind of it's a level of software emulation rather than you know the the true accelerators did i just use the word true accelerators i think i did um but like an actual 060 or even an fpga solution it's not quite the same as that but i'm not snobby about it um and obviously the price point is is the deciding factor here for some people and in all honesty it kind of makes sense because for me i would love an 060 i've got an 030 in my a1200 and that's okay that's great that runs at 48 megahertz I would love an 060 only so that I could play Alien Breathe 3D2 at a decent frame rate. That's a lot of money to play one mm, game. One you know? game. So, so actually a Pi Storm makes a lot more sense. For me, though, um, because I don't like – simply because I don't like pulling things out of machines and installing different things, that's not why I'm in the hobby. I like them to just work. If it works, don't touch it. That's when I actually jump to a PC emulator. So if I want to play Alien Breathe 3D2 at a decent frame rate, I'll use Amiga Forever on my PC. But that's that's my personal choice. Um, but in all of this, and this is where the ST community has an opportunity to do it right, um, just be aware that smoother uh, there is a smoother versus faster. And I know Neil's familiar with this in that some games run faster they don't run smoother, and that actually breaks the game in a lot of cases. So you need to make sure the game is written or rewritten to make use of the acceleration correctly. Yeah, for me, the speed is generally about the loading speed rather than the game speed. I want to feel that authentic, um, nostalgic experience that Mark talks about. I just want to get to it quicker. <laughs> and that, that's where these things, what these things offer. You know, I'd love to just see the faces of some of the original developers seeing their um, programs that they put together, like Stunt Car Racer, for example, and then see it running faster. I think that'd be interesting just for them to see that original work, probably running how they imagined it when they were trying to eke out every frame rate, but that might just be me. So the it's not quite ready for mass market, but it's getting there. They've, they've got over the big hurdles that they had on the way. It's going to be coming soon. And it took me by surprise. I didn't know that this was this was getting there. I knew it existed for the ST and people were working on it, but I'm I'm now watching it with a lot of interest. My own ST though, my own ST is a mega STE, and it like it unlike most STs also has the option to run at 16 megahertz, so it already has that acceleration built in. Um, so it's a bit nicer to use than the standard eight, but this might of course be even better. This might be 
I don't know, the equivalent of 60, 80 megahertz on the, the normal things, so it might be even better. But I'm really keen to find out how compatible the modified games are because one way of modifying the games is to detect which ST they're running on and adjust it so that it works at the right speed still. And if that has if that has been done, then it won't work with the Pi Storm because the Pi Storm doesn't quite work like that. So I don't know how they'll be. I don't know if games will run properly where the I mean games like Corporation or Stunt Car Race or games that really do benefit from it, whether they, they will work properly on the Pi Storm SD. I don't know yet. I'm excited to find out. I'm also wondering if this will open the door for more accelerators on the ST. Um, I know that um, Stephen's got his terrible fire, which works on the ST. Um, I don't know if, if if the work they're doing here will knock down barriers that are there already. So it's all very it's all very uh, interesting, but it's not yet ready. You can't buy it quite yet. Uh, well, you can't buy something ready to go quite yet. Chris, you wanted to do something first of all. You noted this, so I'll give you the, the pleasure of doing it. Oh, no. Just uh, well, I think we should congratulate our good friends at the Retro Hour on 400 episodes. Um, they did an Absolutely. excellent 400th. Um, lots of people giving their thanks uh, via voice messages that they set up. So, yeah, well done, guys. Dan, Ravi, and Joe. Fantastic. Love it. Well done, Retro Hour. Well done. Well done. A few weeks ago, we had Lee from More Fun Making It on, and the star of his auction event, remember the great big live stream that you had, was the Mectrum made by Lee Smith. The Mectrum is a, is a replacement um, shell for the uh, original Sinclair Spectrums uh, that has a mechanical keyboard built in. It's 3D printed, but it looks amazing. He has decided to do a new run of those, possibly because of the attention it got thanks to that event. And he's now doing them for a reduced price of 80 quid. And I'm going to get one. The link is in the show notes. Now from Mike Daly, he said, watching this week's episode, the stuff about the original PSX, the PlayStation, being the best CD player ever is utter tosh. <laughs> the laser and the original PSX was terrible and had huge overheating and warping problems. Your loading code had to deal with multiple tries as it would error over and over. So you'll get the same thing in audio discs. Well, I wouldn't want to argue with Mike on that because he's the expert. So there you go. That's a definitive thing on it. All that <laughs> stuff about audio files using a PlayStation, it's all nonsense. Mike said so. I, I would just point out that um, so long as the PlayStation had a big enough buffer to reread uh, ahead to get that audio, you're still getting the audio at the same quality, aren't you? Uh, whether mm. or not that is audio file quality coming out of the PlayStation, I know that's the big uh, debate that was going on with that with that story. But the laser itself isn't going to affect the quality of the audio coming out, is it, Mark? No, I mean, it's not about the quality of the laser physically moving along the laser sled. And everything Mike says is right, which is unusual for Mike because he created lemmings. Um, <laughs> but, and it's a massive but, I have a massive but, and I want everyone to listen to my but right now. The reason that people 
really stan the original playstation the one with the phono ports on the back wasn't because of the laser quality and the buffer does come into place so you're right there neil it's because the digital to audio processing section was a chip that they took from some of their high-end cd players and there is a little bit of over egging the pudding here because it's one of those things everybody is oh lovely oh it sounds so great there's a, a degree of the emperor's new clothes going on there but uh yeah retries shouldn't really affect an audio cd if you've got enough audio buffer um but you can test it yourself if you've got one of those cd players pick it up and give it a wobble boomer shooters has created a talking point quite a few people unhappy with the term and i've got a confession to make when I first heard the term boomer shooter, I didn't understand what it meant and I made a guess. And my guess was it was because lots of them used shotguns and there were Ooh. lots of booms in them compared <laughs> to modern shooters, which are more kind of rifles and machine guns. So I'm an idiot. Okay, boomer. Yeah. Well, Boom that's stick. why... I- that's why I like boomer shooters as a description. I thought, oh, yeah, because that's what they're all about. And then afterwards, and I found out it was a little dig from younger people calling us all boomers, when in fact they should really be called Gen X shooters. Guys, what do you think, Gen X or boomer shooter? I know when I first heard the term, it kind of stuck because I was like, oh, I'm not I'm not a boomer, but I was playing these games. This is my generation. So mm-hmm. you've, you've, mis- you've misgenerationed it. But also, yeah. I just hate anything that involves putting generations into boxes and saying, well, this applies to you and this applies to you. There's absolutely no need for it, especially in gaming. So um, I hate the term. No. I let's, think let's we should. Kill boomer shooters. We should just refer to them as classic FPS. Yeah, retro inspired FPS or, you know, old school FPS. Or games from in my day. Well, they're, <laughs> they're often referring to new games that have, you know, that old school flavour mark, as you say, when yeah. you're DJing. Uh, yeah, like um, like when people go, oh, look at these games. Oh, I really love the pixel art. No, that's how it looked back then. It's not an aesthetic <laughs> choice. That were that was all the colours we had. Yeah, so that if, was us pushing forward, not reaching back. So if it's an original, like the original Doom, that's a classic FPS. And if it's a new game made in the style of then that's a retro FPS, and that's the correct use of the word retro. Ah, there you go. Yes. You I can agree with that. Vintage Fantastic. Mustard Custard points out that the that Pete Weller, the original Robocop actor, came back to do the game. So I was talking about the game the other week, week and he pointed out there's a Steam demo. Unfortunately, the Steam demo was only available for a short period of time before it was withdrawn. What's that about? So I've missed it. Mm, scarcity scarcity of availability creates demand and to get my briefs out Frasier Fantasy was released for the Game Boy Color as in Dr. Frasier Crane the blurb says fight for your antique silverware sneak through the live in hell's bedroom attempt to throw the ultimate dinner party um, yeah, another another brief that, that I want to add in this week. The Super Control Dock is now up for sale at retrocollective.co.uk. I'm hijacking this section, Dave. Uh, this is a USB device that lets you plug original SNES and NES controllers, including analog ones like the SNES mouse, into your PC, your Pi, your Mac, your Mister. And get this, the Nintendo Switch 2. You can play Nintendo Switch using original NES or SNES controllers. It's available to buy in most regions right now when this show goes out. Um, and it should 
when this show goes out, have FCC approval so we can now sell it in North America. If not, give it a few more days and you will be able to buy it in that region too. Go to retrocollective.go.uk and press shop. Analog are doing a Nintendo 64. They're calling it the Analog 3D, a reimagining of the Nintendo 64. The company says the new console will have 100% compatibility with N64 cartridges in every region. That's a thing now, cartridges, original cartridges working, um, and will even support 4K output. It will also include original display modes featuring reference quality recreations of specific model CRTs and PVMs. We'll probably cover this properly when more details come out. My only question on that is, does it have Nintendo's blessing? We shall see. It must do. Surely they wouldn't get away with it otherwise. A project to inspect the code of the original Civ 1 and recreate it called Open Civ 1. That's been posted there. And a BBC Teletext version of Elite. The same game, but it uses Teletext codes instead of graphics. And looking at it, it's surprisingly playable. It's Halloween weekend, and for the record, I don't believe in ghosts myself, but uh, everyone likes a good scare. And I also do take note of when things go a bit strange. Um, I mentioned briefly a few weeks ago that I had a glass of vodka on ice that inexplicably shook in the middle of the table in this very room, Um, and I hadn't given full details. Um, So it happened just after I'd stopped testing Until Dawn Rush of Blood on my PSVR, And I don't mean I bumped the table. Um, What I mean is I'd done testing the game. I'd switched it off. I'd put the headset down, and I was sitting back on the couch to watch some uh, YouTube on my telly, and the glass just shook. Actually, the glass didn't shake, just the ice within the glass shook by itself, and and not briefly enough for it to just be the ice sort of resettling or maybe cracking with the change of temperature. Um, It it was quite a sustained shake, and then it stopped. You hadn't put your VR headset on the table, had you? It wasn't just sort of vibrating away next to it. No, don't. Now you made me think. No. Did I? No, no, because I was using <laughs> no, because I was using the Move controller, so it wasn't even the the PlayStation controller. Everything was mm. off. It wasn't that. No truck had rolled past. I couldn't hear anything outside that would have caused it. Um, and even the next day, I checked the news because sometimes you might get a slight shimmer from an earthquake, but there was no reports of any of that. And it was yeah. only the ice in the glass that was shaking. Nothing else in the room was shaking. Well, you know what that means? If you... Ghost. Dinosaurs. You've seen Jurassic Park. You've seen the, the glass <laughs> on the table. No, the only, sen- the only sensible um, thing for that is aliens. Oh, yeah. I, I would suggest it's alien dinosaurs. Alien, alien dinosaurs. dinosaurs. Well, Cracked it. Uh, Listen yeah, next that's... week for our next case. So it could either be dinosaurs, aliens, or alien dinosaurs. I'm with you. I'm with you on those explanations. Another explanation, and stay with me on this, maybe Until Dawn, Russia Blood is a haunted game because apparently that's a thing, right? So knowing this episode was going to air close to Halloween, I put out a call on the Discord chat uh, for anybody to post scary stories, ga- scary game-related stories if they had them. Um, but Jacko6502 came to the party with an older link, but it still checks out. It's to a video by What Culture Gaming titled Nine Genuinely Haunted Video Games That You Won't Believe. And they're right. I don't. Um, but it's a bit of fun. And as they say in the start of the video, just play along. So uh, it's a short but entertaining video, and it's hosted by the lovely Ash Millman and, and details such creepy gaming-related stories as the shadow people of Hell Valley haunting the code of Super Mario Galaxy 2, 
Taboo, the sixth sense on the NES, predicting several players' deaths with tarot readings. Ben, this one's an interesting one. So allegedly a cartridge of Legend of Zelda was was sold after the original owner had sadly died, the original child owner had sadly died, um, and when the new owner deleted his save file, weird things started happening in the game and weird messages started appearing in the game that shouldn't be there, according to the legend. Um, Pale Luna, which is a text-based adventure game that apparently contained coordinates within the code that led to the discovery of a severed head in real life in California. Yep, it is Halloween. Um, And music frequencies in Pokemon games leading to deaths to a point that the music was apparently changed in later versions. And (laughs) I know, I know. Why wouldn't they recall the original cartridges then? uh... Maybe, maybe. Because it's not true. It's definitely not (laughs) our fault, but just in case, we're going to change the music. And also uh, Berserk, so on the Atari 2600, I think, the Berserk game, high scores leading to sudden deaths of players by a heart attack and a few other stories including the myths around the uh polybus game cabinet and stuff like that which you've probably heard about before i think the most freaked out i've ever been with a game well the game world crossing into the real world was actually it was kind of the reverse right so i was playing doom vfr in vr and one of my cats walked into the room. Obviously, I can't see my real room. I'm seeing what's going on in Doom. And suddenly there's a cat in the room making noises. And it was the most bizarre feeling because I ended up kneeling down in the middle of hell, stroking an invisible cat. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't scary, but it was quite a bizarre experience. One of my earliest VR experiences in terms of modern VR. And it was really, really weird. A very odd crossover. Um, so, guys, have you been genuinely freaked out by a game or by a game seemingly affecting real life? Dave? So I thought I'll not go down the road of scary games like Aliens and so on, and I'll think about something that, that, that did really happen, and it doesn't really make sense now, but it did for a preteen Dave sitting alone playing with what at the time for me was a scary game. It was the text adventure Lord of the Rings Part 1 and a great deal of the gameplay is set around travelling while not getting caught by the Black Riders. So there's lots of suspense feeling in it. You're trying to creep around and get all the way to Rivendell before you get caught by them. And seemingly randomly, if I'd been playing for a while, in capital letters, the word OOM would appear and that would be the end of my game. The game, the computer would crash. That would be the end of it. And I didn't know what it meant. Was it meaning doom, as in the sound of the drums from Moria? Well, clearly no, it wasn't. It was meaning out of memory. And the game must have had a memory <laughs> hole. I, I, but it did genuinely scare me, because what did I know? At 12 years old, what did I know about out of memory and game errors and so on? It just felt as if something had caught up to the game, and that was it. That's hilarious. (laughs) Well, for me, I mean, actually, you touched on the suspense of being chased down by something. So 3D Monster Maze on the ZX81, that had a real feeling of something behind you at any given time. And it felt real. It felt epic and expansive back then. Um, There was also um, the same kind of feeling in a game on the ZX Spectrum called Skull, where you'd go through all these mazes, these giant skulls with gems for eyes would come after you, and you had to get a crucifix to to kill them, and you'd fall down ladders 
and go to it absolutely brilliant but the thing that i remember particularly made me jump was in resident evil one and i had my lovely i was working i had my lovely 32 inch crt my playstation one headphones on audiophile model mike daly and um <laughs> And I was walking down the corridor and there's a big plate glass window and these Rottweilers jumped through and I was sat in the dark playing out. I absolutely jumped out of my skin to the point where I dropped the controller. You know, it, it made me jump. But I mean, for, for real scary stuff, um, I don't know if any of you had a, a PS4, but there was um, a demo that came out called um, PT by Hideo Kojima. And he released this uh, through a sort of a pseudonym studio called 7780 Studio. And it was basically going down this corridor. And as you went down the corridor, things would change. So there was a crying baby. You'd go into a, a room and there was um, a nasty thing in the sink. And as you went round and you were solving the puzzles, you'd, you'd redo this loop and up to a point where this um, apparition uh, I think it was called Lisa, would like come at you. And if she caught you, you were dead. Yeah. Played and you'd Played start it. again. Yeah. 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 Um, and um, coming back again to that sort of like false scarcity thing, when Hideo Kojima had a falling out of Konami, the demo just disappeared. It completely disappeared. You can't download it anymore. So it's built up this kind of urban legend around it which is really wonderful. And people have remade it. People have hacked the code and found out that, like, when you pick up the flashlight, for example, the ghost is always behind you. So the, it's literally tethered to your player model, and you can see it. They've also realized that the player model was Norman Reedus the whole way through. And, of course, Norman Reedus then went on to work with Hideo Kojima in Death Stranding. So um, that is a real example of it crossing over into the real world, and it, the lack of scarcity has kind of added to its legend, almost become a bit urban legendy. There were no instructions. You just went and you did it, and it was a, a wonderful experience. Um, and lastly, I'll very quickly talk about, because that would throw up things like, and I think I'm safe that there's no spoilers here um, because you can't get it anymore, but it, it would do things like exception faults that were fake and bring down the fourth wall for you. Um, and I think Mr. Chris has something to say about this. Well, yeah, no, because I, I I didn't recognise it by the title, but one of my nephews for, um, on my wife's side, um, he went on about this game and he said, I have to come around, we'll, video, we'll do a video about it because this game is meant to be so, so scary. So we played... Well, I was about to say play through it. We didn't get through it, but we played it. Mm. It didn't freak me out as much. I quite enjoyed the experience. But the interesting thing is we tried to make this video about it, and we've done heaps of videos together. He knows how to use his phone. I know how to use microphone. This is all done on his phone. And he messaged me later, and he goes, I don't know what's happened, but all the video is corrupt. And that oh, in itself really? was, like, <laughs> really freaky. So we, we tried to make a video about it, and we couldn't. But, yeah, it was a fantastic game. Loved it. And that's beautiful. You know, it sort of adds to that little legend. Um, the last thing I'll, I'll talk about very quickly uh, when it comes to breaking a fourth wall, one that actually really caught me out a couple of times. Um, there's a game on the GameCube called Eternal Darkness Sanity's Requiem. And it's kind of steeped in um, Lovecraftian lore, Cthulhu mythos, all that. Um, but as you play, you go through these sections and you play these different um, characters. And I, I won't do any spoilers here, but there are some fourth wall breaks, for example, where you do get um, things that seemingly happen. And I'll tell you this one because it won't catch you out anymore because many people won't be playing on the CRT. But you're, you're playing the game and all of a sudden 
um, your TV changes over to the AV channel or you're listening to the music and all of a sudden the volume will turn down with the green bars. And I quite literally was yelling at my, my, my better half. You're sitting on the bloody remote. You're sitting on the bloody remote. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. <laughs> um, and it was only afterwards I realized that these weren't actually the controls for my TV. And it had broken the football <laughs> and convinced me that this was happening. Because there's this thing called a sanity meter as you take damage or see crazy things. So that was absolutely brilliant. And I think what, what better time to discuss this than on a, a Halloween-related episode. So I absolutely love that. What about you, Neil? Uh, I actively steer myself away from games that are known to be scary. Uh, I have friends who like to Twitch stream scary games specifically, and they're just not for me because I don't like the experience of being mm. scared. It's not it's not what I go for. Um, I mean, I, I used a ZX Spectrum once. Does that, does that count? <laughs> Ooh. Ooh, <laughs> um, so, yeah, um, I mean, and this goes back to the days when I used to play games like Dark Seed or uh, Elvira with the lights down, you know, upstairs and the wind and the rain howling outside. And, and I would scare myself and um, yeah, just decided that wasn't really for me. Dave? Do you mean, when you say scary, do you mean things that are unsettling like... I have no mouth and I must scream. Or do you mean scary things like jump scares? I think, I think I mean sort of horror jump scares. I don't mind right, suspense yeah. and thrillers and that sort yeah. of stuff. Um, it's just the out and out. There's a thing coming at you with a massive blade and it's going to butcher you and run away and all of that stuff. But, you know, if it's if it's considered a good game, like I'm, I'm listening to Mark describe some of those things there, and it does make me want to try them out just for a different video gaming experience because that's another thing we're always striving for, isn't it? You know, trying something that breaks the mold of the genres that have been done inside out. Um, so the only thing that I can think of where computing crosses over into the real world goes back to when I used to dial into BBS boards. I remember downloading a game. I can't remember what game it was. Um, and some mod music files because BBS is used to be the place to go and get mod files to try out in your tracker and thinking nothing of it. And then an hour later, the house phone rang. Uh, and then there was a guy on the phone who said to me, so you like jungle music, do you? Because <laughs> the kind of what? mod files I'd been downloading. So obviously it was a sysop on the BBS and had seen the numbers coming in. I hadn't been clever enough to obscure my number. And you got to remember, this is when we used to have rotary phones. I think we had a rotary phone at the time, so big old handset. And he would have been holding his handset up to his Amiga and going, what do you think of this? And he starts playing jungle tunes at me down the <laughs> phone. And the quality was terrible, as you can imagine. And um, he claimed that his name was Bill Gates. So uh, I'm like, okay, Bill Gates, that, that that's a nice tune. Thanks for sharing that with me. Click. Uh and then he called again and he called again and he called again and he kept calling. Bill Gates kept calling my house. And, and then my dad answered it and he started getting really furious about this, as you would. You don't want to be disturbed on a Saturday night with the phone constantly ringing. And my dad didn't really know who Bill Gates was. So he, he was saying things like, Neil, why does Bill Gates keep calling? <laughs> Dave? So was the guy just not aware of normal social norms and thought he was befriending you, or was he trying this to just to, to freak you out? I, I think, think he, he ran a BBS, so I think you've answered your own question there, guys. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah. I think he was just trying to, you know, this was just his way of having fun. I don't think he was, right. you know, up to any freaking tricks. He wasn't trying to get free calls through us or anything like that. He was just 
being a missing with idiot. Um, and so it got to the point where it freaked me out enough that I had to yank the phone cable out of the wall and leave it disconnected all night until he gave up. So there you go. Bill Gates, big jungle fan. Nice. You should have just left the line open. Massive. He would have cranked up a bill. <laughs> you know? That's true. Maybe. Yeah, should have just left it open. Going back to all these scary stories in this video I mentioned above, the berserk story is is an interesting one, as, as I think that's actually the most pl- plausible, as in players dying from a heart attack whilst reaching a high score. Um, I don't think for one minute it has anything to do with the game itself, so it's not that berserk is a haunted game, but rather just the act of being hyped up during gameplay um, and perhaps an unfortunate perfect storm of an undetected pre-existing condition. It happens to athletes. We see that in the news quite often, but it does also happen to gamers. Um, I won't go into massive detail because it's quite a personal story, but we actually nearly lost my son, Luke, back in mid-2020. He'd got home from work, sat at his desk in his room to play League of Legends, and five minutes into the match had a cardiac arrest. I was at work for all of this, so I didn't see it personally. And the story ends well. I'll throw that in here. He is alive. Um, He's a five percenter. But, you know, people were home, CPR was given to him by his twin brother, Zach, and the ambulance uh, arrived very fast. Um, So, um, yep, he survived, no brain damage as a result or anything like that. Very, very, very lucky that people were in the right place at the right time. Um, But, yeah, if you've got a pre-existing condition that you probably don't even know about, gaming can get you to that same state of increased heart rate that can lead to the perfect storm in your body. So the Berserk story, as far as I'm concerned, is is probably true because um, apparently there's more than one player that, that it happened to. But again, it's nothing to do with the game itself, just one of those things that can happen. Um, so actually, while I started this story as a bit of fun for Halloween, I'd like to sort of end it on a bit of a serious message, if I may, um, and that's learn CPR because you just never know. Uh, and even if you've not learned it, if you're the first person on site uh, and you come across somebody that's non-responsive, get stuck in because you seriously can't make that person's life any worse than it is in that moment. Um, And of course, always call the emergency services first. And generally what they'll do is they'll actually talk you through what to do. That's what they did when Zach was administering CPR to Luke. Um, Luke still plays games. Um, He's not played League of Legends, funnily enough, since. Um, The game isn't to blame in itself, um, but he just doesn't want to play it. And to be honest, I don't think I'd want to either. Um, as for me and my haunted room and my haunted copy of Rush of Blood um, Until Dawn, I'm streaming at 1pm UK time. Self-shameless plug today, Saturday, 28th of October. Um, so I wonder what will happen in the room this time. Time now for our community question of the week. So uh, I've had fun reading this one because I wasn't on the show last week. So I've been catching up. And the question that was posed was, oh dear, Mac versus PC, which camp are you in? Let's have some fun with this one. So I have disabled contest mode, and I will read out the top answer, which comes from our good friend Richard Shears, regular contributor and listener. And he says... Oh, God, Richard. I mean, he's taken the question and he's answered it. Guys, you know, one, one week I wasn't on the show. You need to be clear with these questions. So Richard has answered, I wear a Mac when using my PC to make me feel sexy whilst editing videos. And I wear my constable costume when using the Mac, constable, PC, (laughs) to help Claire get in the mood to not slap me when I'm wearing the Mac. I used to just have an iMac 27 back in the Skyrim era, which would perform dual duty, but sadly the M1 put an end to that era. And now I need to go back to Skyrim to remove the arrow in my knee, so I'll shut up. 
Thank you, Richard. I mean, he answered it, and and he got voted to the top. <laughs> he did indeed. We did say have fun with it, so yeah. Yeah. Technic UK says, I always like to build my own hardware and tinker, so for me it was and still is Windows. Although if things carry on with Windows as they are right now with Windows 11, I'll probably end up ditching that for something else. Probably Linux Mint, especially as Linux seems to run games a whole lot better these days. To me, Macs were and still are overpriced for what you get. Ditto for iPhones. I think the only Apple product I've ever enjoyed using was QuickTime, in which large part was because it was free. <laughs> I don't know why he got so angry towards the end of that. I was you. Technic was being quite civil about it, and you've made him sound like a, as if he's raging. He's a raging Apple phobe. Antiques for Geeks says, got utterly fed up with PCs in the mid-2000s, fighting them all day at work, getting home, and installing what felt like gigabytes of Windows XP security patches before reading my personal email. So I switched and didn't look back. However, as Mac design has changed, the drawbacks are really starting to grate. Given the cost, the lack of upgradability, regardless of form factor, is poor having to effectively throw working hardware when someone else decides that the end of life really irks. Still, I really like Mac OS's user-centric experience. Not as good as OS 2, obviously. And it'd be hard to shift platform again now. Time to shut up my face. And Chris says there's four of us. Why don't you read out the fourth answer? Oh, okay. Um, yep, Rowan Forrest. I had to use a... M1 Max some weeks ago, and the mouse response felt like wading through mud. I'm sure Macs are nice for typing emails, ordering pizza on the web, and stuff like that. <laughs> to which, to which Lord Borak three one six chimes in a, a grand to browse the web and order pizza. No idea why anybody would buy one when a PC is half the price and does the same thing. Yeah, fair comments all round. I think. I've no idea yeah. why anyone would call for pizza when Tesco's value pizza is available. Oh, we got your sponsorship slot in there, Mark, did you? <laughs> Mark, sponsored by Tesco Value. I can only dream of being sponsored by Blue Stripe. That would be wonderful, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, thank you for to, to everyone who contributed. There are a huge number of answers in there, more so than a, a normal community question of the week. So do go and have a look at our uh, subreddit, reddit.com forward slash r forward slash this week in retro. Have a scroll through the answers and take part in this week's question of the week, which is, I think we are going to go with a Halloween-themed question. So quite simply, what gaming experience freaked you out? And I'm going to extend this to computing experience, like I had. My, mine wasn't a gaming experience. So, you know, maybe you got freaked out by Excel. I don't know. You know, what, what scares you scares you. <laughs> PowerPoint stalked you. I don't know. What, what, what computing experience freaked you out? head over to our subreddit. And also, uh, if you see any interesting stories this week that you'd like us to discuss, or you'd just like to share with the rest of the community, it's our subreddit, reddit.com forward slash r forward slash this week in retro. Submit your stories, upvote the ones you like, downvote the ones you're not interested in. And somehow at the end of the week, a show comes together and here we are. Thank you, Mark Fixes Stuff, for joining us. I know you've been unwell today, so appreciate the effort of coming and joining us. Go and tuck yourself. You look better, in. actually. He's look he's he's, he's looking yeah. healthier than he did at the start of the show. Does so all yeah. those devils avocados? It is. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps we'll have Ultra Satan on the show again sometime. 
Dave, Chris, oh, thank Christ you. <laughs> and thank you everyone for taking the time to listen. Please subscribe if you haven't already done so. Leave a review on your podcast apps and we'll see you next time. Take care. Bye. They're waving. Even Duncan's Bye. waving. Bye. Bye. We know you're waving, Duncan. Week in Retro was presented by Neil from RNC The Cave, Chris from 005 Agema, and Dave. It was produced by me, Duncan Styles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favourite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. Join our community subreddit at r slash thisweekinretro to suggest and vote on the stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers. If you enjoy our show and would like to support it, then please check out the link to our Patreon page in the show notes or description. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.